We're going to begin a study on the man Elijah and progress from there to his disciple Elisha as we've been studying some of the men of God's Word, their application to our lives today and what the man of God looks like, how the man of God behaves. I want to read just one simple statement. James chapter 5 and verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Let's pray. Lord, You are so good. There's nowhere I would rather be on the entire face of this planet than here in this exact building with this exact group of people this morning to worship You. Lord, it is an honor and a blessing to be in the center of Your will. We pray this morning that You'd finish what You have already begun. God, that You would break down walls in our hearts. God, that You would fan the flame that is alive in the hearts of Your people, that we would leave bolder and braver, more committed than we came in. God, we pray for the sinner this morning. He would be saved. Anybody that's bound by anything, God, that this morning they would be set free, for You are still the great Deliverer. The God who changes not. Lord, this morning I come to You and I pray for Your anointing, Your power, Your unction from heaven. Help me to preach this morning not from a man to men, but God, in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, spiritual words to a spiritual people that produce life and eternal change. God, I ask, Lord, that You'd have Your way. Show us Yourself. Let Your Spirit fall upon us. Have Your perfect work in us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it and pray. Amen. So the Bible says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Let's study this man, Elijah, beginning in 1 Kings 17. I searched high and low for a watch this morning. You're welcome. But I did so because I don't really have any notes. I'm just going to preach until time is out. As we study the life of Elijah, there is no particular thought, no particular verse um, that I have built a sermon around this morning. We just want to look through the Word of God, study the life of Elijah, For two purposes. We want to see what is relevant to our day and our time, but we also want to see as individuals. As the Bible said, that Elijah was a man like us. This great man of God. One of the most revered prophets of old. What can we learn about his life that relates to our life as individuals? And so I'm not going to be reading every verse. I'll just encourage you to read chapter 17 and chapter 18, and you'll know what uh, exactly the Word of God says on the matter. And then next week, read chapter 19. But this morning, we start in chapter 17, which tells us that Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand... There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, in verse 30 of chapter 16, it says that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Ahab was the worst king that Israel had ever known to date. Matter of fact, Ahab married Jezebel, this this literally witch of a woman who worshipped false gods, who uh, worshipped Baal and Asherah, and 
and, and had a, a wicked heart to destroy the worship of the Jews. She was just a downright evil woman. Israel was in a state that was absolutely embarrassing considering the fact that God had brought them out of the Red Sea, had led them through the wilderness, had brought them into the Promised Land, had worked miracles in front of the eyes of their forefathers, and yet here they are in a modern-day culture where they are worshiping Baal. The state was pathetic. The king of Israel was the worst and most wicked king that Israel had ever known. Israel was supposed to be God's people, God's country, the the specific tribes that were supposed to be brought up to, to be the light of God to a dark world. And instead, the darkness had overtaken them. They were worshiping the false gods of this world. And it is in that state that God brought up Elijah. What I want to say this morning is it is time that the spirit of Elijah rise up in our own culture. God brought up Elijah to turn Israel back to the Lord. This was no easy task. and Being God's prophet never is. In my Bible, I have written, God help me to be your prophet. May I light up a dark backdrop of the current culture like a bolt of lightning as Elijah did in the spiritual darkness of his day. That sounds like a heroic thing to write and it sounds like a heroic thing to ask, but as we study the life of Elijah, you'll find it sounds popular, but it's not. It is no easy thing that God called Elijah to do. But I pray this morning that somehow, some way, the Holy Ghost of God will fan the flames in some man's heart or some woman's heart and we will rise up and say enough is enough. It is time to stand for truth no matter what it costs. Just stare it in the eyes and say here is what the Word of God says. It says in verse 33 that the Lord God of Israel was provoked to anger more than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. This is what Ahab did to God. Provoked him to anger. Notice that the Lord's response to his anger was to send Elijah. Now Elijah comes and he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives. And I tell you, God still lives. He is alive and well. And Elijah came not only to say so, but to demonstrate it. And I believe if there's anything that this modern day culture of ours needs, it is a fresh demonstration of the power and life of God. It's not another explanation of it. It is not a discourse on what it should look like, but a living example of what the power of Almighty God looks like. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto the salvation of men. Can I say, brothers and sisters, if what we're preaching does not bring about the power of God to change men's lives, to change homes, to build, uh, to take broken lives and to repair them, if what we're doing does not be accompanied by the power of God and the salvation of men is not really the gospel we're preaching at all. For the Lord God lives. You need to know that this morning. If you are broken and busted up, if you are in a situation that seems hopeless, my God lives this morning. He is alive and well. And He is here this morning to meet your needs. It is time that we quit backing down in fear, that we quit making excuses for the powerlessness in the church, and we stand on the authority of the Word of God and say, Our God still lives. Now Elijah came, and he came straight to Ahab. And he said there won't be any rain for three years. The full span was three and a half. This is quite a pronouncement of judgment because they worshipped Baal, and Baal was supposed to be the fertility god, which means that all really came from him, that rain, lightning, that he controlled the atmosphere. That's what they believed about Baal. And so... For Elijah to pronounce that there would be no rain is in essence also saying the God you claim to worship really don't have power over anything you says He has power of anyway. The one true living God is the God who can stop up the rain. The one true 
Creator of the heavens and the earth is the only one who has power over these things and there will be judgment for the next three years. Elijah was sent to demonstrate that Yahweh, not Baal, was still the one true God. Elijah's name actually means Yahweh is my God. So he goes and he tells Ahab that Judgment's coming. Then God comes to him and tells him to go and turn eastward and hide by the brook, which flows into Jordan. He said, it will be that you'll drink from the brook as I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. This is an odd command. He tells the prophet to go to a particular brook and to drink from the water and that ravens will feed him there. The commands of God do not always make sense. But we have to know what God has commanded and obey it with unwavering faith. Most of us, our attitude towards God is, Lord, I believe You can do something like that, but I need You to at least send a raven first. I just want to make sure it's going to work. And if You'll send a raven for dinner tonight, I'll go to the brook. But the blessings of God only happen in the place of God where God has told you to be. And the Bible says in verse 5, So he went and did accordingly. All of Christian living is not as complicated as we make it to be. It's not. We just simply need to learn to do accordingly as God has said. It's when we refuse to do accordingly and we try to live as Israel did with one foot in and one foot out, one foot on God's territory, one foot on the world's territory, one foot understanding the things of God, one foot trying to figure things out in our own way of thinking. It's there that life becomes incredibly complicated. Things don't work. You begin to question God. You begin to become confused. The Bible says God's not the author of confusion. And quite frankly, His commands are pretty clear. Whether they make sense or not, we must obey them. What does Proverbs chapter 3 tell us? 5 and 6, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, to acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and He will direct your path. Elijah did accordingly. The Bible says the ravens, they brought him bread and meat twice a day and that he drank from the brook. That word bread, as much as this was a miracle, I'm not discounting it at all, but a lot of times we kind of have in our mind that these birds brought baskets with you know, a little bit of uh, napkins folded in them and, and, and a nice loaf of bread and T-bone steak with a fork and a knife. That word bread is the Hebrew word lehim. It is a word that just means food in general. It can refer to fruit. It can refer to berries, nuts, grains, that type of thing. And the word meat is the word flesh. We just see that these birds, through the the direction of God, brought this man something to eat. That he lived off the provision of what these birds brought every day. Truly it was a miracle. No doubt about that. God was teaching Elijah that For you to get to the place of Mount Carmel, for you to be my man, for you to accomplish all that I have for you, you will have to trust me to meet your need and to provide in the hour. It says in verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up. You see, sometimes the brook dries up and it's time to move. We're always looking for that final blessing that once we have it, we're just blessed forevermore. Never have to worry about money, never have to worry about this, never have to worry about that. But sometimes the brook dries up and God says it's time to go on, it's time to move forward. God has a way of drying up the brook in our lives so that we don't get lethargic, so that we don't live right there beside the brook all of our lives because there's work to be done. God is ever increasing our faith. God is always revealing more of Himself to us. God's goal is not for us to sit on the blessings that we've had and never go out and do anything else. 
So the word of the Lord came to him and told him to go to Zarephath. That word Zarephath, it means refining. Can I tell you that refining is a place we all must go if we're ever going to be bold at Mount Carmel. If you're going to be used of God, we will have to mature and come to the place where we trust God with our lives, we trust God with provision, and we're willing to go through the difficult things so that we can learn to be refined. It is there that God deals with the unbelief in our hearts. It is there where God shows us at times how small our faith is. And all of us have the ability to say, no, I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay right here. But if we're ever going to become the men and women like Elijah, he was a man just like us. He had like passions as we did, a nature like us. We must learn to trust and obey God. Notice that Elijah comes to this woman and he asks her for something to eat. And she says in verse 12, that she's gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. What a terrible plan. What an absolutely terrible plan. I sure pray tonight that God opens our hearts to this passage of Scripture. Because all of us, in large part, we're like this widow. We're so wrapped up in the facts that we forget the truth. We're so wrapped up in our circumstances that we forget that the God that we serve is outside of circumstance and He can do anything that He wants at any time that He wants. And that's pretty much our plan. Well, I guess we're just going to die. The church has become so weak, we don't have a voice anymore. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Let's just be quiet and revert to our caves and hope that maybe somebody comes into our little cave someday and asks us about Jesus. We'll tell them then. We're defeated. No hope for us. We're weak and miserable. Just poor little pilgrims waiting to get through until finally our victorious God wins. What a terrible plan. What a lame attitude. There's not a word for it in the Word of God. Oh, that God would rise up inside of us, that the flame of our hearts would begin to burn with passion as we would be reminded that our God, if He wants to, can take a couple fish and a few loaves and feed nearly 12,000 folks. He can do anything He wants. Where is the faith? Jesus said, will I find faith when I come back on earth? And I look at the church in the modern day state and I think to myself, I don't know. We make excuses for our impotence. We make excuses for the lack of the power of God in our own lives. We make excuses for our cussing tongues, our dishonest conversations, our slothfulness to the house of God our slothfulness to the study of God's Word, the lack of passion to take Jesus to a lost and dying world, we make excuses for it. In large part, people show up to try to appease the longing of their soul to feel spiritual. But we need a new demonstration of the power of God. That's what we need. And I'm telling you, I believe God's hungry for it. God is not afraid. God is not changed. God wants the world to know His power. God wants the world to know He is the great I Am, the God who saves, the God who delivers, the God who can meet every need, the God who sent His Son to bleed and die on Calvary's cross so that salvation could come to mankind. And when Jesus said, it is finished, He meant what He said, it is finished. There's nothing that God has not accomplished so that you and I can live in the fullness of the life of God. What a terrible plan. Elijah says, you go take what you have and make it, and you give some to me, 
And the Lord is going to provide. And God does exactly that. You know the story. See, all that God asks for is all that we have. And until we're willing to give all until we're willing to give God all that we have, we'll never really see the blessings that God can give. God takes care of the rest when we give God what we have, and that's exactly what God did. It tells us that the bin of flour was not used, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman became sick, so sick that he died. In verse 18, she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son. God had just provided through a miraculous provision for her. And now her son dies. In our church, there are a large handful of you who are experiencing spiritual victories in your life. Your faith is being increased. Your understanding of the things of God is growing. Your experience of God in your life is becoming greater. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to God's man this morning and listen to this principle. This woman who had just experienced God's miraculous provision in a way she had never thought possible, now something worse happens. Her son dies. Often, great blessings are followed by great testings. God says, I'm not done there. I'm not done just showing you that I can feed you. I'm not done just showing you that I have the ability to produce food out of thin air. I have something else further. So don't be surprised when you go through an amazing victory. Don't be surprised when you're, when you're on the top of your spiritual mountain and your faith is growing and you see God in a new way and your faith is just... The flame seems to be stirred. Don't be surprised when on the other side of it a great test comes and God says, do you trust me now? Elijah would find the same thing out when he would have his amazing victory on Mount Carmel. We'll see that next week. So Elijah says, give me the boy. And he takes the boy up to the top. And he stretches himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord. Let this child's soul come back to him. And the Bible tells us that the child was brought back to life. And Elijah brought down the child and gave the child to his mother. And the woman said, by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. In verse 21, it tells us that Elijah stretched himself out three times. One of the things I've personally learned about the power of God, about miracles, healing, God still does miracles, God still heals. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm not afraid to say it. I stand boldly as Elijah did. And I say to those who say that God doesn't heal and that God doesn't bring miracles, you bring them here. I want to talk to them. I want to see them face to face. I'm willing to stand on behalf of my God. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. May God just let this Spirit rise up in all of us. I'm not going to make excuses any longer. My God still heals. My God still does miracles. I know. I've seen it. I'm not just talking based upon the authority of the Word of God, though the authority of the Word of God is enough. I've experienced it. I've lived it. I know it. It's true. But listen to this. Elijah prayed three times. Our problem is we're just not persistent. That's our problem. We just want to pray one time, call it good. Must not be God's will. Prayed for so-and-so to get saved. Must not be God's will. Do you know the Word of God? God's not willing that any should perish. So don't you be blaming God for people going to hell. We've got to learn how to persist in prayer as Elijah did. Elijah does it later in chapter 18 when he prays seven times before the rain comes. He said the rain is coming. It wasn't coming yet, but he knew it. And he began to pray and he learned how to pray and then pray again and then pray again and then pray again. We're lucky if we get two minutes of prayer in the average church anymore in the life of the average child of God in his average day. And at that, it's shallow. It deals with blessing the food and, and a good night's sleep before he goes to bed. 
Can I tell you, if we're going to experience an awakening in the church, if, if we're going to see revival in our hearts, if we're going to see our lost loved ones saved, we must learn how to tarry in prayer and how to toil over their souls the same way that Elijah did with this young man. God, do what it takes. Take the sleep from their eyes. Let them go to bed thinking of what might happen if they fall asleep and never wake up again. May they be so terrified by that reality that they can't even sleep at night. God, send somebody to them to speak to them in their time of need. God, reveal to them truth. Do what it takes. We do a lot of talking about praying, but we do so little of it. God help us. We need to wake up like Israel had to wake up. We need some Elijahs in our day and time who will believe God and stand for what is true. If we care to raise the dead, spiritually speaking, we must learn to agonize over their souls as Elijah did over this boy. Now it came to pass, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I'm in chapter 18 now. Doing well. We've made it through a chapter. Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. That's an interesting statement. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Israel was the northern portion. Um, you had... Judah, which was the southern portion, and Jerusalem was in that southern portion. But Israel, which was the ten northern tribes, they had a capital that was called Samaria. Samaria was located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. Notice that while there was famine in the land everywhere, it was especially severe in Samaria. You see, God has a way of concentrating His wrath to make the point He wants to make. This was where Ahab and Jezebel reigned. It's where they live. Verse 4 tells us that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. I've read this passage now for 13 years. I've never seen it another way. I've read commentators that try to um, justify such a thing. And I can just tell you, in my heart, I don't see it. I don't believe it. I don't think that it's a good thing. I think it's embarrassing. Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. First of all, I want to note, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the great hall of faith, where God, through the, the Holy Spirit, actually inspires the apostle, whoever wrote uh, Hebrews chapter 11, to give people by name. That towards the end of that passage, the martyrs are honored. Those who died not having received the promise. It even says some of them were sawn asunder. Some believe that is a reference to the prophet Isaiah, who uh, history tells us was more than likely sawed apart, sawed in two while he was alive. We see that when things got tough for the disciples, they did not run and hide in a cave until some great king rose up, but they preached the Word of God, each and every one of them, to their last dying breath. Prophets in a cave are of no more use to God than prophets in a grave. I'd rather die preaching the Word of God than die a coward hiding in a cave. You see what the enemy wants to do? He just wants to absolutely kill the fight out of us. That's what had happened in Elijah's day. That's why God raised up in Elijah some man that had enough courage to say, you get all your prophets, all 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah, let's meet on their turf and let's just have a showdown. That's the Spirit of God. He's not afraid. There's something wrong when we revert to the cave and we live our lives in fear. 
This is where the church is gone. We're afraid to stand up and speak truth. We just want to back down about everything. All under the, the, the banner of supposedly love. Why don't you love God enough to stand up for God? To live for God. These prophets had a specific duty, and that was to be the mouthpiece of God to their generation. No wonder their generation had gone so wicked and so weak and was under the power of Jezebel. Their prophets were such cowards, they lived their lives in caves. May a spirit rise up inside of us where we are no longer fearful. And Elijah comes. He says to Ahab in verse 17, verse 15, he says, I'll present myself today to Ahab. So, Obadiah goes and gets Ahab, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened with Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Isn't that interesting? He actually blamed Elijah for what was happening. Now, it was Elijah who said there would be no rain for three to three and a half years. It was Elijah who made that prophecy, and certainly it came to pass. But the wicked king's response is, you are the troubler of Israel. Can I say something and just be frank? Most people who live in their sins who refuse to repent of their fornication, who refuse to repent of their sins, who refuse to turn to the living God, who refuse to quit their lying tongue, who refuse to quit their cussing mouth, most of those people, when their world gets turned upside down, they blame it on God. Why would God let this happen to me? God will let you destroy yourself, friend. Don't you blame God for the consequences of your sin. Your life is messed up and broken and busted up because you refuse to surrender to God. You can't blame it on God. It's your fault. Elijah told him, you are the one that's turned from the commands of the Almighty God. As a pastor, believe me, I hear it. People's lives are busted and broken up, messed up. They don't want to acknowledge it because of their sin. Somehow somebody else's fault. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, you'll find that they blame it on God because God could have sent rain. Maybe God's trying to get a hold of you, friend. You see, rain was the substance of life. Without rain, eventually the crops died. The the creeks dried up. There was nothing for the, the livestock to drink and things began to die off. It teaches us that God is the source of life. There really is no life outside of God. Everything outside of God is just death. This morning, if you are not saved, if you have not been born again, if the Spirit of God has not taken residence in you, if you have not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are nothing more than a dead man walking. You don't even know what life is. I spent 20 years living in death. I didn't know what life was. I thought what I had was life. It wasn't until I was born again, changed by the almighty power of God till the salvation of heaven flooded my soul, that for the first time I could say, this is life. This is purpose. This is meaning. Jesus is life. And outside of Him, there's nothing else but death. Oh, that our, the church would grab a hold of that. Too many in the church are trying to find life everywhere other than the giver of life, everywhere other than the source of life. So Elijah says, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandment, of the Lord. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me 
on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. I want you to notice that Elijah made the commands. Elijah wasn't the king of Israel, but Elijah had a higher authority than the king of Israel. Elijah's authority was God Himself. Oh, that God would help us to see, brothers and sisters, we are kings and queens. We are sons and daughters of God. All authority of heaven and earth has been handed to the body of Christ, that is you and I. Let us walk like it. Let us believe it. Let us live like it. Elijah said with boldness, I'm calling the shots here, King. You go get all your prophets and have them meet me on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. Baal was considered the male god. Asherah, the female goddess. Some even saw these two as a couple. I want to say something. Mount Carmel was located between Israel and Phoenicia. The lands of the deities in question. It was regarded by the Phoenicians, who were Baal worshippers, that Mount Carmel was actually the sacred dwelling place of Baal. The prophets of Baal would be delighted with such a location. You know, it would make sense to us that we'd say, no, 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 Elijah, uh uh-uh. You call them down to Jerusalem. You call them down to God's territory. You don't go to where they are. But Elijah said, we'll go to the mountain that you claim your God lives. We'll go to the very mountain that you all worship. And you bring all 850 of your devil-possessed prophets, and I'm going to stare them down in the eyes, and you're going to see who the one true God is. My goodness, that's conviction, is it not? Lord, let it rise up in us. We need not fear the devil here, the defeated foe through the power of Jesus Christ. The modern modern day church, the modern day Christian, is pathetic. We treat the devil as if he's 50 feet tall and our God as if he's a foot and a half high. How sad is that? He is under our feet. He is defeated. We have nothing to fear when we walk in the power of Christ. Neither did Elijah. So these prophets, no doubt, they were ready. They thought, this is great. This is going to be on our own turf. We should not fear the devil. God is with us and for us. Now it says in verse 20 that all the children of Israel, that's an important term. Ahab sent for all the children of Israel. See, we have a showdown getting ready to go on. And gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. You see, Ahab and Jezebel, the Bible tells us in chapter 16 that Ahab actually set up altars of worship to Baal. That he actually made it an official practice of Israel to worship Baal. You can almost see the heart of Ahab. He's he's ready for this. 850 of the prophets there. More importantly, the 450 prophets of Baal on Baal's territory, on the mountain that Baal supposedly supposed to dwell. And he has all the people of Israel come. He wants them to see this thing. He is ready to watch Elijah get smashed. He is ready for it to be declared that he and his wicked wife are right. He is ready for this thing. And all the people of Israel, it says, they show up. We don't know how many. We don't have any idea how many were able to make it there by that time how fast the word went out. But no doubt it was in the thousands of people were there to examine what took place. I want you to notice something. So far, Elijah has dealt with Ahab, has he not? It was Ahab in chapter 17 that Elijah came to. Ahab represented the leadership of Israel. 
He said to Ahab, there will be no rain. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, he comes to Ahab and he says, we're going to have a showdown. You go get your prophets. But here we see the first time Elijah addressed the people of Israel who showed up to watch. And here's what he said in verse 21. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. But the people answered Him not a word. The people were cowards. Just like their prophets were cowards. They were just going to go with whichever, whoever won. That's what they were going to do. We're not going to say anything just in case Elijah loses. We don't want Ahab to think we are against him. We're not going to say that we're on Ahab's side in case Ahab loses. Then Elijah's going to judge us. So we just won't say anything. We'll just stand in the middle. You listen to the preacher today. When you stand in the middle, you have made a decision not to stand for God. You can keep your mouth silent all day long, but your silence is enough condemnation that you don't stand for God. He said, choose your side. If Baal is God, then serve Baal. If Jehovah is God, then serve Jehovah. Can I say it today? Choose your side. Quit playing games with God. Quit living one day in this way and one day out this way. Too many people are just testing the waters trying to figure out which, which way they think might be the best. It's a, it's a spiritual no man's land. It's a terrible place to live. If you have been living in that place, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify you right now. Not by name, thank God. But you listen to the preacher. If you've been living in that place where half your life is kind of on the edge and you, you, you hang out with folks you shouldn't hang out with and you do things you shouldn't do and, and, and you're, you're, you're partaking in sin that you know you need to, to get away from, you're refusing the holiness that God's called you into on this hand. And then on the other hand, you do got a little bit of church. You, you try to say you're a Christian and, and you might even pray a little bit and read a little bit and you just kind of try to do the best of both worlds. I don't need a show of hands, but I'm about to tell you exactly where your life is at. It's empty. You often question whether or not God is real because you don't experience Him in your life. You wonder where the joy and peace and satisfaction that the Christian talks about is really at. If that's you, you show up on a Sunday morning like today and you watch the people worship the way some of us worship and you think to yourself, what is that all about? Is that real? Or are they just faking it? And it's a miserable existence where if we were to describe what your life felt like, it's like a life lived in the desert. Never satisfied. You're not satisfied with God. You're not satisfied with the world. And you still question the purpose of life. You see, I just nailed you. That's where your life is when you try to live that way. It's a spiritual no man's land. It's what it is. We see that it's much like the people of Israel who, who came up and refused to enter into the promised land and they lived and died in the desert. It's a terrible place to be because in reality, you haven't gone far enough with God to experience the fullness of God's blessing and, and touch and His and His intimacy in your life to know Him. You haven't gone far enough to do that, but you've gone too far to really be of any fun to the world anymore and to, to, and to enjoy the world, and you're just in a spiritual no-man's land. Can I just be frank? The prophet was. Pick a side, man. If you're going to sin, then go sin. Get out of here. Don't waste your time. Paul said if all we have is this life, we're most miserable. Go eat and drink and be merry. Go do your thing. Enjoy it while you can because hell's coming on the other side. But if you're going to serve God, then serve God. Repent of all your sin. Give Him all your heart. He died for you. He deserves all that you have to give. Just surrender to Him and serve God. 
Quit faltering between two opinions. Make up your mind who you're going to serve. That's what Elijah said. That's what I say today. I don't think there's any honor in being like the children of Israel. Honoring God with your lips and then denying Him with your life. I'm, I, I'm not, I don't even care about that. I don't want to see that. I don't, I, I don't want to pamper that. I don't want to excuse away your sin. It's not easy being the prophet. You know, when you look at the history of the world and you look at the prophets that God has used over time, they were never, mark my words when I say never, they were never liked in their day. Never. Not a single one of them. Not Ezekiel, not Jeremiah, not Isaiah, not Elijah, not Elisha, not John the Baptist, not Jesus. Never. But afterwards, afterwards, the church always looked back and said, those guys told the truth. Those are our heroes. If that same Spirit is going to live in us, we're going to have to get over what people think. I'm not here to hurt anybody's feelings this morning. The truth is, I want to see people set free. That's, that's the truth. And, and the truth will set you free. God loves you. I know that sometimes I come across as brash and just straightforward. I don't apologize for that. It's what I am. And unfortunately, if you want to be pampered, there's about 15 churches in this probably 10-mile radius you can find. Go somewhere else. They'll pamper you. They'll tell you everything's okay. Not all of them, but most of them. We need an awakening in the church. We need some Elijahs who are willing to stand up and say, enough is enough. Choose your side. Quit playing games. How long will you falter? The people left him hanging. You'd think maybe the Spirit would have risen up in them and they'd be cheering him on. Our prophet's going to win. Nope, they just left him hanging. Sometimes being the prophet is a very lonely place. Everybody will tell you you're doing it wrong. Everybody will tell you you've got to do it different. Elijah addresses and challenges the people of Israel. He has the prophets of Baal first do their deal. And for six hours, the prophets of Baal, they try to pray down the fire of heaven and ask Baal to do what only Baal can do. And nothing happens. And Elijah, he begins to mock him. He begins to say, well, where's Baal at? Maybe he's on vacation. He, he says a statement that would be very similar to our modern day statement. He basically says, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. He'll show up shortly. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's out on a voyage. The Bible tells us they begin to cut themselves. You know, cutting has always been a long time uh, connection to demonic activity. Cutting is a bad thing. It's something we're seeing happen a lot amongst our modern day teens. If your teens are cutting themselves, it's a serious thing. Don't you play it off like it's just a stage. You need to talk to him about it. That's a serious thing. And these prophets begin to cut themselves. Blood began to fall. Their own blood. Nothing happened. Finally, Elijah says, it's my turn. The Bible says that he took 12 stones in verse 31. I want you to remember that at this stage in time, that the kingdom of, of Israel had actually been divided into two kingdoms. You had a northern kingdom with ten tribes, a southern kingdom with two tribes. But he didn't just take ten stones. He took twelve. It was a reminder that from God's eternal purpose, they were to be one nation in His eyes. Different tribes, but one united nation. It's a good reminder of the need 
for restoration and the reemerging of the two kingdoms back into one. I feel this so strong in my own soul about what we call today's denominationalism within the Christian church. It's okay that we have different tribes. It's okay that we have different thoughts and different this and that, but we need to be in unity, that we are one body in Christ, that we serve one God, that there is one Spirit, there is one baptism, there is one God in heaven and earth who is the God of all of His children, and we have one eternal purpose to lift up His holy name and to bring people to Him, to bring people to the foot of the cross that they might be saved. We need unity again in the church. And Elijah took twelve stones. He built an altar. And... Then when he built the altar, he made a trench around it in verse 32. And he said, not only that, I want you to take water and pour it on the altar. I want you to take water and pour it on the wood. I want you to take water and fill this little trench around the altar. Elijah's ready for a showdown. I am too. I am too. I'm ready for the world to see our God still reigns. He's still powerful. We can do all things through Christ. All things. We say that much, but don't mean it much. These signs will follow them who believe. They'll cast out demons. Heal the sick. Speak a new tongue. Anything they drink deadly, it will not poison, it will not kill them. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? I do. Jesus is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So the Bible says that He got all of this ready. And He prayed this, 63-word prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel and I am Your servant and that I have done all these things at Your Word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that You are the Lord God and that You have turned their hearts back to You again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This was a pivotal moment in Israel's history. It was God answering from heaven, reminding His people He is the one true, only great I Am, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God over all the universe. What an awesome victory that Elijah experienced. He said, seek the prophets and kill them. And they did exactly that. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is an abundance of the sound of rain. The judgment was now over. I want you to see that. The judgment was now over. You see, judgment always prepares the way for the blessing. But until we're willing to let God judge our hearts, until we're willing to acknowledge our sin and turn our hearts back to God in our own individual lives, there will be no blessing. But as soon as the judgment came, as soon as the people turned, as soon as the false prophets were executed, the very next verse says, Elijah said, there's the sound of the abundance of rain. I'm going to close with this. He went and told his servant to go look towards the sea. And he went up and said, there's nothing. What happens when you don't see what you believe God said He was going to do? You better be like Elijah and you just keep praying. God, help us to be a people of prayer. We've become a nation of quitters. Try it once. If it don't work, quit. Pastor made me mad. Quit. You preach too long. Quit. I can't do this thing or that thing. Quit. I asked God to answer this need in my life and it didn't happen. Quit. 
Elijah wasn't a quitter. We saw that about Abraham. Remember, Abraham failed big time. He wasn't a quitter. It's what you're going to see about the great men of God and the great women of God throughout the Bible. You're going to see it in every single person we examine. They just weren't quitters. It's not that they didn't fail. It's not that every single time they prayed, immediately their prayers were answered. It's that they weren't quitters. They were committed to God. They believed God. They had a firm-rooted faith in the fact that their God desired to let His name be known and they were not going to settle for anything less. They were going to continue to pray until God showed up and God showed this world He is the glorious King of kings and the lover of our souls. May that same tenacity rise up in us. He prayed and He prayed and He prayed and He prayed again and then He prayed again and then he prayed again, and then he prayed again. That's seven times. And the rain came. And the drought ended. This is our introduction to the life of Elijah. What a great man of God. A man who the power of God worked through his hands. The very first recorded resurrection from the dead ever recorded in the Bible happened in chapter 17 when he raised back that widow's son to life. The prophet Elijah, through who his word, the, 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 the barrel never did run dry and the oil never did go out. The prophet who was fed by the ravens at the brook. The prophet who stared Ahab in the eyes and said, No, this place is in shambles because you have forsaken the commandments of God. The prophet who looked the people of Israel in the eyes and said, Choose you this day, who will you serve? Now, I want to ask you a question. and the prophet who stood on Mount Carmel and wrought one of the greatest single-handed victories history has ever recorded. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand. But I want this to sink into your soul. How many of us agree that's, just, that's honorable? That's awesome. That's our man. That's the one that went before us. We all will we'll praise him. We'll talk about the greatness of Elijah. We'll do everything but live the life of Elijah. But James said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We'll see him in his humanity next week as he gets his eyes off of the Word of God and the promise of God and he begins to listen to the lies of Jezebel. We'll see that this great, mighty man of God was vulnerable just like you and I. But for today... I ask the question, if you see his life as so honorable, then let us rise up and be like him. I'll ask our worship team to come. This morning I want to talk first of all to the man or woman that's here this morning and the reality is you're not saved. You know about God, maybe. You've heard about God, maybe. But you've never been saved. You've never truly been born again. This morning, will you come? You say, how do I get saved, Pastor? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not by just saying some magical formula of words and then just trying to believe your words. It happens in the heart. That's where it happens. It happens in coming to a conscious reality that I am a sinner, an enemy of God. And unless I get saved from the awful punishment that's due to me, I'm going to spend forever in hell. Start with that. And then comes a willingness to confess that to God. God, I know I am a sinner. Being willing to ask for forgiveness. God, please forgive me. Forgive me. And then, here's the final thing that is often left out in our culture. You must repent. There's no salvation without repentance. Jesus said, repent, lest you perish. That's Jesus' words, not mine. When they came to the apostles and said, what must we do then to be saved? 
first word out of his mouth was repent. Acts chapter 2. Look it up yourself. You cannot be saved and refuse to come out of your sins. But this morning, if you're willing to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus Christ, to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you're willing to deal and ask God to forgive you and confess that to Him this morning on the authority of the Word of God and the experience of multitudes here this very morning, I assure you God will meet you there, wash away your sins. The Spirit of God will take up residence in your heart and He'll change you from the inside out. But the choice is yours. Choose you this day. To the child of God this morning, I say, let us not be playing games. Let us be the Elijahs of our day and time. Let us not be guilty of being cave hiders. I don't want to be a cave hider. I want to die in the cave. I don't care if people don't like me. I don't care if they say I'm intolerant. You get to know me, go find I'm one of the most loving, tolerant people you'll ever meet. I just tell you the truth. That's all. I'm not going to lie to you to make you feel happy. Jesus didn't do it told the truth. And sometimes people went sorry. The rich young ruler left. I had somebody recently tell me that when I say the things that I say, when I get specific about calling out sin, that it hurts people. And that Jesus never hurt people. He said that Jesus taught us that you'll know a tree by its fruit. And if what you're teaching causes people in any way to be ashamed or condemned, then the fruit of your teaching proves that it's not of God. You want to know exactly what I told the man? I quoted the words of Jesus to the Pharisees and I said, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. First of all, the teaching on the fruit is not about the fruit it produces in others. It's about the fruit that what you believe produces in you. You are the tree and the fruit that comes out of you is what proves what you are. If sin continues to come out of you, if your lifestyle continues to remain in rebellion to God, it is evidence you are a bad tree. Jesus never intentionally hurt anybody. He came to heal. He's here this morning to heal. But you explain to me, friend, why on after three and a half years of ministry on the last night of his life, how come there were only 12 left and 11 by the time Judas killed himself? And how come every one of them abandoned him and he died alone? Where were the multitudes then? Where were the crowds then? I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God under the salvation morning if you need to be saved. Father, I pray that you move all across this room. Move on hearts and minds, Lord. God, I've preached this morning. I believe exactly what you're happy to preach. So you thought you had to keep this up.